This is Love Your Work. On this show, we help you make it as a creative entrepreneur, find your unique voice, find the right mindset to succeed, be the first to capitalize on new opportunities to make a living making your art. I'm David Cadavy. If you want to join us here on Love Your Work every Thursday, please hit subscribe on your podcast app and get your free creative productivity toolkit. You should do that. Sign up at cadavy.net slash tools to get that. When your life gets too comfortable, you stop taking risks. Loss aversion starts to take hold. You become complacent. You stop innovating. You stop being dynamic. And by the time you realize that you've become irrelevant, it's already too late to change. This is one of the main themes behind the work of Tyler Cowen. Tyler writes one of the most influential economics blogs in the world, if not the most influential, at marginalrevolution.com. He's also an economics professor at George Mason University. In Tyler's book, The Complacent Class, he argues that Americans are getting too comfortable and not taking risks, or as the title would imply, they're getting complacent. Average is over, another of Cowan's books argues. The complacency of Americans is leading to the great stagnation, which is another of Tyler's books. Instead of being stagnant, he says we should be dynamic, keep learning, take risks, step out of your comfort zone. This, Tyler believes, will lead to economic growth, which Tyler argues is definitely a good thing in his latest book, Stubborn Attachments. Now I was thinking about the theme of taking risks, stepping outside of your comfort zone. Just before I wrote this here intro, I was in a cafe in Chicago. And moments prior, I was thinking about how out of all the places in the world, this cafe was not where I wanted to be in that moment. Not only had my Colombian visa application been rejected, my first Airbnb stop in Chicago turned out to have a bed bug infestation. So I had to hastily move to a different one. So if I trace back the butterfly effect, I could see that it was all because of this lifestyle that I had chosen, that I was in this situation, which was, you know, not the thing that I would have chosen in that moment. And right now, as I record this, I'm sitting in my parents' house. I'm almost 40 years old. For the next month, I'm living with my parents. Not the number one place I'd choose to be, but I'm having a fine time anyway. But I then realized that while my life is riddled with problems in recent months, and if you're interested in details, listen to my recent notes right here on the podcast, especially an update on my Colombian visa. While my life had these problems, these problems lead to growth. They're problems that lead to a lifestyle that I have built and that I continue to build. And I could avoid a lot of these problems just simply by living a more comfortable and stable lifestyle, staying in one place. But that wouldn't help me grow in the ways I want to grow. It would cause me to stagnate. And critically important, I've designed my life and my work to withstand volatility. And that can be financial volatility, emotional volatility, even political volatility. And having parents willing to take you in for a month is a part of that system. So thank you, mom and dad. But not only can I withstand that volatility based on the way I've set up my life and work, I can actually grow from that volatility. So I've built this outlook with the support of Tyler's thinking, and I find him to have a really holistic view of the economics that rule our world with an uncommon emphasis on art and culture and creativity. And so this is perfect timing to have Tyler on the show. In this conversation, we're going to explore why should you move? Tyler says that even if you're merely considering a change, that probably means that you should make that change. He explains the data. He tells you why. And is there a next Austin 
just waiting to explode and growth some mid-sized town that's just is going to be on the up and up soon? Find out where that next Austin might be so you can get there first. Take advantage of the opportunity. And one way we get complacent is by trusting algorithms to make all of our decisions for us. That could be on Netflix or on Facebook or on Amazon. We're trusting the algorithms to choose what we watch or what we read, what we buy. So how can you be anti-algorithm? How can being anti-algorithm actually help you be more dynamic? Those are the things we're going to talk about today. First of all, I want to thank our newest Patreon supporters. We had a lot come in. Steven Serio, Ty Wood, Andy Schuster, Paula Spriggs, Melanie Berlin. Thank you so much for your support, for joining Patreon. We just broke the $300 a month barrier, which is really fantastic. Support has nearly doubled in the past six months. It's tripled in the past year. It's also grown infinity percent since this podcast began three years ago. So I'd say that's progress. A recent supporter, Tabitha, explained to me why she chose to start supporting Love Your Work. She said, I've recently decided to stop trying to fit into Western society's view of what a career is and what I feel the people around me expect of me and focus on my passion of writing and encouraging people to become self-aware. She goes on to say, thank you for your message and being an inspiration to me. I listen nearly every day. So thank you, Tabitha. If my heart skipped a beat on that line about not fitting into what people expect of you, if you listening, if you resonate with that, with what Tabitha has to say, please become a part of our Patreon supporter family. Go to patreon.com slash Cadavy. That is patreon.com slash K-A-D as in David, A-V as in Victor, Y. Thank you so much for that. And the world of podcasting keeps growing. Love Your Work seems to be a part of it every single step of the way. Pandora, you know, the music streaming service, Pandora, they have launched a podcast genome. So they'll be analyzing and categorizing podcasts according to 1,500 different attributes, including a host profile. So like, what is the host like? So using this data, they'll be able to make recommendations for you of other podcasts that you might like based upon podcasts you already listen to. So as you can imagine, analyzing podcasts according to 1,500 different attributes is a huge task. So Pandora is starting off with just a handful of podcasts. And as you might guess, based on the fact that I'm even telling you this, that Love Your Work is within that handful. Love Your Work is going to be one of the first podcasts in Pandora's podcast genome. We were hand-selected from the podcasts that are hosted by Libsyn, which is our hosting platform. And somewhere around 1% of shows made the cut. So that's really amazing. That's a huge honor to have this show hand-selected to be included in Pandora's podcast genome. The podcast genome is still in public beta. If you want to sign up for Pandora's podcast genome public beta, I've got a link for you. I made it easy. Just go to academy.net slash Pandora. It'll take you right there and you can sign up to get in on that public beta. That's academy.net slash Pandora. Okay, here is Tyler Cowan. I'm so excited to be here with Tyler Cowan. And Tyler, you were one of the, I think one of the first big academic bloggers. Now you have 
what must be the most popular uh, economics blog in the world. You started in uh, 2003, Correct. which is very early for a, an academic blogger, I think. What were you thinking at the time? Uh, first, I was blogging on Volokh Conspiracy, which was mostly a legal blog. And then it seemed to me there was room for an economics blog. And I said to my colleague, Alex Tabarok, like, hey, let's just do this. We can do it. And uh, before we knew it, we were doing it every day. We didn't have a sense of where it would lead. We would have been thrilled had we gotten, you know, 5,000 readers. And we have many times that number. And we've been doing it now 15 years. And was there much skepticism from your colleagues? Well, there still is somewhat. But, uh, you know, I think I have one of the very best audiences in the world, most of all in terms of quality. And it's led to a lot of other opportunities. And more economists read me than almost any other economist. So at some point, I think you have to say it's been working. I ended up writing 10 years at the New York Times. Now I'm one of the main economics columnists at Bloomberg. Uh, So it's, you know, the single best thing that ever happened to my career. And they discovered your work through your blog. And many more people read my academic articles and books. And did you have any, were you second guessing yourself at all when you started that blog? No, I think in a way I'm too oblivious to do too much second guessing. And maybe that's one of my uh, virtues. I just charge straight ahead with things and keep on going. And if I'm happy doing it, that's enough. If you had second guessed yourself uh, or, you know, other academics, what sort of second guessing do you think uh, prevented them from doing the same thing? Well, it's not peer-reviewed. The level of formal respect it receives is still highly unclear, but was much more unclear then. And, you know, even after two years of doing it, like blogging as a thing hadn't taken off, I was very happy doing it. But people were like, Tyler, why are you doing this? Uh, Alex and I, we just stuck with it. And that was a kind of turning point because then two or three years later, blogging just exploded. And then with the financial crisis, it became bigger yet. You didn't have any concern that it might be damaging your career? No, it was obviously helping my career and bringing me a lot more readers. And I learned a lot just from having to write out arguments. To me, that's the biggest selling point. It's not the readers I have, but that it forces me to be more precise. And when you have to write things down, you figure out what it is you really know or you don't know. Your and colleagues mostly who... it's don't know, right? Right. Uh, your colleagues who were saying, Tyler, why are you doing this? What do you think they were thinking? That I'm strange, I was being silly, I was, you know, somehow swept up in what would become a fad. Uh, But a lot of them subsequently started blogging themselves. And even if they don't blog, they'll often look to me to help publicize their work, which I'm happy to do. So, uh, you know, the attitude really has changed uh, greatly. And people come to me for advice, not only about blogging, but just writing, social media, media presence, like building a personal brand. In a lot of your work, there is a theme of um, the relationship between, I guess, stagnation or complacency and uh, what you might call dynamism. I believe that's what you, you usually right. call it. And obviously, starting this blog in 2003 was a very dynamic activity. And as you said yourself, a lot of your colleagues have uh, started, blo- started blogs themselves. It, in what ways, including that, have you seen higher education itself, which you are very ingrained in, evolve in ways to be more dynamic? Well, if you roughly measure the number of people reading blogs, economics blogs, in a single day, it's probably greater than the number of people enrolled in principles of economics classes. So in a way, it's become the main way we teach the public as economists. 
That's the big change, and it happened very quickly. And of course, it's free. It's open to anyone who can read English. Even translation now is starting to become possible. And, uh, you know, it was led by people who took some chances. And it's really been a big breakthrough. The number of self-educated people in economics who are really smart is just much, much higher today than it used to be. And to what extent has that dynamism that happens outside of the uh, the architecture of the university, to what extent has that found its way into the university itself? Well, people assign blogs for their students to read in class or students read the blogs on their own. I've also started an online education site called mruniversity.com with Alex Tabarrok. And those are free economics videos. They're totally free. There are not even any ads. And we're getting now 5.4 million views a year. And we feel that is helping to educate the world. And all the time we get emails or letters from people in India and Africa who are saying, I had no other way of learning economics before this. So the videos came out of the blogging. We thought, you know, we should expand our product line. Uh, and again, just the power of these media for education. I think we're still underrating them. Podcasts are important. Hmm. So if you're going to write about dynamism, like you should yourself try to be dynamic. I know that sounds trivial, but it's amazing how many people who write about dynamism are not. And so what are some ways that a person could be dynamic? Well, it depends who you are and what your skills are. I think what is very common... Actually, maybe we should define dynamic for the listeners first. I think of dynamic as a situation where there is change. You are producing more value for your users or consumers. In some, but not all cases, you're also earning higher income. And you're changing how other people do their business or teach their material or communicate their ideas. That's dynamic. A lot of academia is pretty static. Same lecture notes every year, same classes, same topics. So academia has both. Uh, the dynamic is starting to become stronger than the static, but it's still not quite there yet. And before we go too, uh, too far down that, can we talk about uh, why do you think that people uh, avoid being dynamic? Well, it involves risk. You have to put yourself out there. I don't even think monetary risk is the main problem. It's that people are afraid to fail. People don't always like feedback. If you fail, or in fact, even if you succeed, the world tells you everything that's wrong with you uh, all the time. Like I'll get emails or blog comments, people telling me how wrong I am, how bad I am, all of my different failings. You know, some of it's true. And uh, for some people, that's tough to deal with. It's important to develop a thick skin, especially in an age of social media. And, you know, accept your own failures and limitations. Look yourself in the eye, figure out what you're good at, not good at, and deal with it. Are you familiar with Nassim Taleb's concept of anti-fragility? Oh, absolutely. And I did a podcast with Nassim not that long ago in the series oh, wow. Conversations with Tyler. Uh, he and I hit it off great. Uh, he's a very important thinker. He's also used social media to his advantage, mostly Twitter. What do you think the relationship is between uh, anti-fragility and dynamism? I think dynamic uh, sectors or industries or companies they're less fragile because they develop the ability to adapt and to change. So things never go according to your plan. And if all you have on your side is stasis, I mean, someone else will be dynamic and beat you. So, you know, in my latest book, Stubborn Attachments, which is just out, that's all about the virtues of economic growth and dynamism for society as a whole. But it's true also for individuals and companies. And so is it that um, one reason that people avoid being dynamic is that they are exposed 
to failure. They are exposed to criticism, and that creates a sense of loss aversion um, that makes them think that they're actually harming themselves when, in fact, it's a it's an instance of anti-fragility where those exposures to these stressors are actually uh, improving their work and what it contributes to the world. Exactly. And we were going to be talking about what a person can do to be more dynamic. What would you recommend to somebody to be more dynamic? Develop a thicker skin if you don't have one already. Uh, Again, it depends what you do, but at least consider the notion of writing every day, even if it's only for yourself. Uh, Sit down and honestly ask yourself if you understand your strengths and weaknesses very well. If you're ever like at the margin where you're genuinely not sure, like, should I try some change? Uh, You know, on average, there have been studies that people who attempt the change do better than people who do not attempt the change. So at least consider if you're unsure, you know, maybe that's a sign you should do the change. You mentioned that writing every day was one of the things that has helped you be dynamic. Uh, What were the biggest surprises that you've run across in making that this daily habit? That I understand hardly anything. Uh, You know, when you try to teach things, that's the real moment of truth because you think you understand many things and you write out arguments on different sides and all of a sudden you're more agnostic. Mm. And that's hard to come to terms with. It's a blow to your ego every day. Well, this is something I've been thinking about lately, and I haven't, I haven't been able to form a solid opinion about it. And you'll you'll understand why in a second. Was was that that there could be some virtue in having no opinion about things? Is that something that resonates with you? Ah, uh, yes. I wouldn't quite say no opinion. I would just say a very loosely held opinion. So, like most of your opinions, they should not be like ninety nine percent I'm right, one percent I'm wrong. It should be like fifty three percent I'm right, forty seven percent I'm wrong. You'll also be more tolerant to other people. You'll be more cooperative. They'll be more willing to cooperate with you. So just, you know, a modesty, not like literally no opinion. Like you're going to think one thing rather than the other. Mm -hmm. Uh, But maybe you should just think it by a pretty slight margin. And that's maybe the biggest thing I learned from blogging every day for 15 years. Why do you think it's so valuable to have such a loosely held opinion? Most people disagree with you. So the correct answer is actually not known with certainty. So you're closer to actual truth. So when you make plans, like your predictions will be better. Uh, And again, you can work with people from many different points of view because they will see, even if you don't agree with them, you see, you know, merit in what they think. And I I guess for myself, it might be that if, if I withhold having an opinion on something, then I find myself to be far less resistant to the idea of changing my 53% opinion on it. Is that something yes. that resonates with you? Absolutely. So, you know, today it's 53%, maybe tomorrow it's 52, it jumps up to 56. But just realize it should be changing all the time, each time you think about it. And people will view you differently. They'll be more willing to tell you things, more willing to confide in you, because, you know, you won't think for sure what they're saying is nonsense. Again, even if you don't agree with them. And you're clearly a very dynamic educator. I had your colleague on here, Brian Kaplan. Uh, His opinion of of the education system seems to be that that it's a a waste of time and money in in a lot of ways. Are there, uh, one, what what do you think of his work and his theories? And uh, in, in what ways do you feel that higher education might still be lagging behind um, 
the world outside of higher education, I guess. I'm more positive than Brian on higher education. And one thing I did once, just as a kind of experiment, I went to some of the most successful people I know in terms of like being corporate leaders or having earned a lot of money. And I just asked them, like, what did you learn in college? And some of these are even people who dropped out. But they said, you know, I didn't always learn everything they tried to teach me, but what I did learn was incredibly important. So I think higher education and teachers, professors, and mentors have transformed many lives. I agree with Brian. It's way too wasteful. A lot of what we teach just isn't important or interesting. It has a lot of problems. I agree with a lot of his criticisms, but I don't think he quite sees the transformational impact of it. And what do you think is education's uh, edge currently over, say, you know, deciding that you're just going to uh, teach yourself everything? Well, education gives you a peer group. It gives you social connections. There's a regular schedule. You get out of the house, so to speak. I know a few people who can teach themselves more or less everything, but, you know, most of us can't. And if you're learning matrix algebra to sit in a class with a group, I think for a, more than 90% of people, that's the better way to do it. Mm-hmm. That's a boring of- subject, by the way, matrix algebra. Or, you know, learning <laughs> a language, uh, again, much better done in a group setting. Immerse yourself if you can. A lot of instances where like being inspired by a social setting helps you learn. Well, I mean, that, that brings me to a question that I've heard you hear that you, I've heard you say on your podcast conversations with Tyler, underrated or overrated travel as a source of education. I view travel as greatly underrated, especially by Americans, less so by Europeans. So many of us don't even have passports. But you go to a different country, just questions hit you all the time. Why is this different? Why do people behave this way? Why do they look this way, talk this way? Why is the food different? And all the time it sets your mind racing. It's much more potent, I think, than reading just about any book. You're seeing a whole new world thrown before your eyes. And if you're curious, that to me is, you know, probably the greatest intoxication of them all. It's just seeing and taking in a new place. Well, when you talk about this idea of a group setting, of being in an environment that inspires uh, curiosity or questioning, then it sounds like travel is, is one of these things that can, can do that for somebody, in your opinion. Yes, sometimes it can be travel within this country, too like to go out to San Francisco and interact with tech people or go to Southwest Louisiana, interact with like a Cajun community. Uh, it doesn't have to be in other countries, but that's the simplest way to get radical. It's just to cross a border. Well, you have one of the, I think the most, the leading blog on uh, ethnic restaurants in the Washington DC area. Is, is that a form of travel for you within your own town? Absolutely. So I'm a a big advocate of the idea of what I call local travel, that even like in Northern Virginia, we have these small communities, you know, they sort of seem to an outsider not that different. But when you learn them, they're very different from each other, even like different streets in the same town can be different. And to do like micro travel and try to get out those fine distinctions, in my case, through visiting restaurants, ethnic restaurants, to me, that's fascinating. And I don't have to leave my immediate area either. Do you ever find that after you go on a trip abroad that you come back and uh, that trip experience has somehow enabled you to discover something locally that you wouldn't have discovered without taking that trip? Oh, sure. You just understand your own country much better once you've been to many others. 
you know, some of my last few trips were Ethiopia, Azerbaijan, uh, Kiev and Ukraine, uh, southern China. I went to Guangzhou for the second time. Uh, all just phenomenal experiences. And mostly new to me. Guangzhou wasn't new, but I had been only 30 years before. It was basically a totally different place. What's the most recent travel experience that changed the way that you saw something? Uh, my very last trip, I was in Singapore after Guangzhou, and I think it was my sixth or seventh visit to Singapore. And every time I'm there, I just learn better how smart their bureaucrats are, how good their civil service culture is, how well-functioning their public sector decision-making tends to be. And then you compare that to this country, you know, we're far from the worst, but uh, you see more clearly how many bad decisions we make, say, with infrastructure or just planning. Do you have an example of something that you saw there that, that stuck out to you? Well, their healthcare system, they spend about 4% of their GDP on healthcare, and we spend about 18% with our system, and their health is better than ours. Now, what does that tell you? That's not an entirely fair comparison because they all live in a city. It's easier to get to the hospital, but still, better levels of health with less than a quarter the spending. It's amazing. And that was something that you saw as a tourist there? Well, tourist is a tricky word. I know people <laughs> there. I've talked with people in government. So I'm not sure you can see it just by gotcha. showing up. Uh, but if you've been a few times and developed some contacts, you will get an inside glimpse of how things work in Singapore. And it's a small enough country. Like once you know some people, you just keep on getting entry points into more and more other people. And you will learn a lot from them and also about food. A big theme in your work is that there is a, a great stagnation uh, happening in the United States. We have a book called The Great Stagnation that, that is driven by the complacent class. Uh, can you talk about those two ideas and how they work together? Since 1973, productivity growth and innovation in this country have slowed down quite a bit. Everyone loves to cite the tech sector, and that is wonderful and marvelous. But most other, most other sectors have been pretty stagnant. We're flying in planes that were designed, you know, more than 50 years ago. And back then, people would have been shocked if they had learned we'd still be using, you know, 747s. Uh, the very fact that we put a man on the moon, basically in seven years, uh, we couldn't do that today. The Golden Gate Bridge, you know, was built in just a few years' time. Now it takes us a decade or more just to build like a new entry ramp onto a bridge. It can take years just to rename a bridge. So things move more slowly. We're less dynamic, creating fewer good jobs. Uh, I find this very discouraging. It's a central theme in my work to try to overcome this. Why do you think it's happening? I think there are a few reasons. One is we play it too safe. Another is we're too complacent. A third is I think we regulate some sectors too much. But I think the biggest reason is uh, we had this powerful new technology in the 19th century, you know, fossil fuels, really taking advantage of them. And then we eventually played that out. We did everything we could with fossil fuels. Uh, so you have cars, you have airplanes, right? You do electricity for everyone. But at some point, you're just making marginal tweaks on what you've got. Well, the car is better, the seat's more comfortable, the sound system's better, and you're less dynamic. So you're waiting for the new set of transformative technologies. Uh, it will happen, but there's a lag. There's a waiting period. And right now, we're in that like holding room. Mm-hmm. Do we have a, I mean, is, is innovation necessarily a good thing? 
not necessarily. There can be bad innovations, but the societies that have stopped innovating have never met good ends. You right. see this in some earlier periods of Chinese history. I think you need to try to innovate and manage the process well. But is every new weapon system a good thing? You know, probably not. Uh, you know, might bioweapons someday kill a lot of people? Uh, there is that risk. But, you know, your enemies are going to innovate. So, you know, you need to develop antidotes, so to speak. So you've no choice but to try to play this game and to play it well. And one of the culprits that you cite in uh, the complacent class is matching. Can you talk a bit about matching? Matching is the phenomenon where people look for others that are just like they are. So it's a form of voluntary segregation. Uh, I think too often, you know, we try to marry people who are just like we are or they have the same political views. A lot of school systems are becoming more segregated. Uh, it's a way of taking fewer chances. Matching is very comfortable, but I think life having some randomness, some serendipity is actually good for dynamism. And so part of what's causing matching is supposedly uh, better algorithms or at least our perception of algorithms being better. Is that accurate? Some of it is the computers, but sometimes it's just our choices. So in today's world, that say one law partner would marry another law partner, partner is very common. I mean, that's great for them, uh, but it's exacerbating inequality. It's limiting upward mobility. And you end up with people in these bubbles where, say, like the Hillary Clinton voters didn't know any Donald Trump supporters. A lot of the Donald Trump supporters didn't really know many Hillary Clinton fans. Uh, this country was not like that 30 or 40 years ago. And that's the negative side of matching. I just tweeted the other day that uh, I wish that there were anti-algorithm buttons on various services. So, for example, on Twitter, there would be people that you would never think to follow. On Amazon, there would be books that you would never think to read. Uh, you know, Netflix might have shows that we don't necessarily think that you're going to like. Uh, what do you think of an idea like that? I'm a fan of that. My version of that in life is not to use the internet too much to find new restaurants, mm -hmm. but to rely on my own driving around. They're like, hey, that place looks good, or walking around, depending on the neighborhood. I live in the suburbs. Uh, and I actually find in the long run that outperforms the internet, not on any given instance, but when you do the hard work yourself, you get better at figuring out what works. And so there's a kind of lazy tendency. Oh, let's just Google best restaurant in Fairfax, whatever. But you keep on doing that. You never figure out the system. I remember hearing a story about uh, you driving around to various used bookstores in the uh, northeastern area of the country and uh, buying used books. Uh, what was your criteria for deciding what to read? And was that a, a sort of form of anti-algorithm? That was very anti-algorithm. Uh, you know, my friend Dan Klein and I, we'd go to Boston, to Philadelphia, to Baltimore, to Wilmington, and we'd just pick up books in stores, and they'd be pretty cheap usually. Like, does this intrigue me? And if it did, you know, you'd spend the $2 on it. You wouldn't read 17 Amazon reviews, and, you know, I know your book has all five-star reviews. That's great. But just like you pick it up, and you think, gee, you know, maybe I'll take a chance on this. Uh, yeah, I remember I remember doing something uh, similar when there were thrift stores in Nebraska. I would just go to a, my my criteria was basically, oh, if I've heard of it, I'll buy it, which maybe isn't the best criteria. But uh, for myself, who was somebody who was not particularly well read at that time, uh, that was a, a useful shortcut for getting lots of cheap books and records. And, you know, pawing through library shelves is very useful. 
Uh, younger generations don't do this nearly as much, and I worry about that too. Well, yeah, and at the library in Omaha, where I was living at the time, they would have uh, used used book sales. So they would have surplus books and they would sell them for 25 cents, 50 cents. Uh, that's something I haven't necessarily seen nor nor looked for in a lot of other places. But uh, it, that, that was very anti-algorithm. Was that something that you ever came across? Oh, all the time. Yeah. We would wake up early in the morning, get in line to be the first ones in for the used book sale, get, you know, pick of the best books. This was a regular feature of my life. We're going to take a quick break. This is the time of year when everyone is thinking of thoughtful gifts. Think about giving yourself the gift of an Audible membership. With Audible, you can access an unbeatable selection of audiobooks. They've got bestsellers, motivation, mysteries, thrillers, memoirs, and more. You get three titles every month, one audiobook, two Audible originals that you can't hear anywhere else. Listen on any device, anytime, anywhere. You could be at home, at the gym, on your commute or just on the go. I really love listening to biographies. Check out Snowball, which is the extensive biography of Warren Buffett, my former neighbor. Right now, for a limited time, you can get three months of Audible for just $6.95 a month. That's more than half off the regular price. Go to audible.com slash loveyourwork or text loveyourwork to 500-500 to get started. That's Audible. A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash love your work or text love your work as all one word to 500 500. On uh, James Altucher's podcast, which is a fantastic interview that people should listen to of of you, you said something that really stuck out to me, which was that uh, leaving the U.S. to become dynamic would be a trend, I'm not quoting here, but would be a trend that would be increasing in, in the future. Can you expand upon that thought? Well, the United States' long-term rate of economic growth is probably at about 2%. In this moment, we're somewhat above that, but most economists think you you know count on two percent. The world economic rate, on average, is well over four percent. So that means there is more wealth being created in other places, higher rates of change, in some ways, more dynamism. Now, there's problems with leaving your home country. Language can be one of them. You give up personal contacts. Uh, your network can be weaker. But there's just more opportunity in many, many other places. And it's not just a few countries, it's most countries. So I think we're already seeing a trend. And indeed, as I believe you live this. You live in Colombia, right? That's correct. And uh, you must like it there and enjoy being there. I, yeah, I, I enjoy it. But there's also a lot of challenges about it of that course. I enjoy. I enjoy the challenge of learning the new language. Uh, you were talking about matching. I, I'm, I'm dating a Colombian, completely Great. different economic and, and uh, social background. Um, so I could see that, that that would be a beneficial, that would be a virtuous thing or something, uh, you know, in, in, in your worldview or, or theory, perhaps. Um, and for myself, it's one of these things where I, I, I did think about places to live. and. Uh, I don't see a a next Austin in the U.S. Yes. Do you understand what I'm what I'm Absolutely. saying when I say that? Yes. They're too expensive and, and, or too discovered. Well, I don't know of one myself. I would agree with that. Well, and what do you think of Richard Florida's theory that a a great creative mecca needs? Uh, I believe it was talent, tolerance, and technology. Does that sound like an accurate? 
it like needs assessment. talent. It needs talent and technology, but Beijing is trying to prove it doesn't need tolerance. We'll see how that experiment develops. So I agree two out of three, and on the third, I'm uncertain. And that's I one favor of things- tolerance, but you see some great cities that don't necessarily have it. Can you expand on that? Uh, if you say are gay in China, it can be an issue or a career negative. In a way, it's not in much of the United States. Mm, right. Politically, there's very little tolerance for dissent. Uh, pressures for social conformity in, in many directions are stronger than in the United States. So there's some tolerance there, but I wouldn't describe it as strong on tolerance. And yet they have a phenomenal startup scene, great visual arts, amazing cuisine. It may be the most important city in the world right now. I don't like that it's not so tolerant. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if the recipe's working, you know, maybe Dick is right two out of those three. We'll see. This is one of these things that I was seeing as I was looking for places to live. It was about three years ago, I decided I wanted to double down on writing and doing this podcast on kind of living an intellectual life, reading books and, and exploring the things that I'm curious about. And uh, I just really found that there weren't a lot of options for me in the United States for places that I could live at a relatively low rent uh, that would also have uh, just a culture that I would like. It seems like um, the big cities like New York and San Francisco are, uh, I like to say, a sucker bet uh, in terms of cost of living. Uh, a lot of the, the smaller mid-sized places that you can live, or, I mean, there might be like Austin, where it's not necessarily that cheap to live. Uh, if you are really looking for a, a cheap place to live in the United States, my uh, relatively uninformed opinion is is that uh, most of those places are uh, politically a bit behind. Yes. Um, and that those are some of the things that might prevent us from having a next Austin in the United States. What do you think about those observations? Uh, I don't know where the next growing center is. And the fact that rents are up so much in the Bay Area and in Manhattan is a sign the market agrees with you. That if there were some other place like Chattanooga would become something magical, well, people wouldn't pay these outrageous prices to live in downtown San Francisco, but they do. So that suggests the next Austin is not really here and maybe also not around the corner. Well, um, could it be that there's also a, a bit of, um, oh, what, 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 is, what is the word? Um, <laughs> stagnation is the, is the word that comes to mind. That's not the, not the word that I'm looking for, uh, where... People are just maybe slow to react and to to catch on to the idea that there are um, other better options for them. Well, maybe, but if you look at the 19th century when settling the West was at least for the hardy a good option, it happened pretty rapidly. So mm-hmm. right now, a lot of cities they don't discourage a lot of building. For instance, even places like Dallas are becoming a bit expensive. Uh, a place like Atlanta takes in a lot of people. To me, I don't mean to offend anyone, but it's a little dull. (laughs) And uh, the vital areas of the U.S. creatively, culturally, just seem far too expensive. Inertia was the word that I was looking for. Yes. Um, Yeah, and it reminds me that uh, it could be that there are somehow in some better options, like an option that might in some be better for a person, but there isn't necessarily the impetus to cause them to move and to make a change uh, from the um, from from your book, the uh, complacent class. I believe it's from uh, the 
Children who were forcibly displaced by housing demolitions were, as adults, 9% more likely to be employed, and they earned 16% more than than those who were not so displaced. So that would suggest that if somebody is forced to move uh, for circumstances beyond their control, that that is uh, somehow economically um, beneficial for them. Is that an accurate assessment of that? Yes, and there've been other you know subsequent studies children forced to move because of Katrina they also ended up better off. So this idea has a lot of evidence behind it. Like if you're even thinking of moving you probably should. And another interesting piece of data that I saw was that you said that a New York City apartment in 1950s was the equivalent to $530 in, I think it was $2,009. So maybe it'd be around $560 or something like that for an apartment in New York in, in today's dollars. Um, and that the typical New Yorkers spend about 10% of their salary on rent. Am, am I reading that right? And yes. what sort of implications does that have on dynamism? Well, upward mobility is being choked off. You can, you know, watch old movies and there'll be stories of these like drifter men. They just move into Manhattan. They go into some flop house, maybe on Broadway or Fifth Avenue and pay some small sum to live downtown. And then they work their way up. It would be crazy to do that now. You couldn't afford anything livable or clean or sane. So the idea of moving to a big city to improve your lot in the world uh, is not in this country what it used to be. Yeah, it seems like if you are an aspiring artist, you're somebody who I think has, I think artists, you can generally just say that they need a long runway. You know, it takes a lot of time to explore your creativity and to get to a point where you can be economically stable with that. It makes it sound like um, that is not going to happen in New York unless you uh, have a trust fund. Even Brooklyn is awfully expensive. So if people can do it from other countries, you know, I think that's a good idea. I love Mexico City, Latin America, Buenos Aires, but there are many, many places. So do you think that the next Austin could be a place like Berlin or Medellin or Mexico City? Sure. I mean, Berlin is already the next Austin and then some, uh, but there will be others, maybe Med- maybe in Colombia. And in the complacent class, the great stagnation, as you're, you're talking about this theme of complacency, of... Uh, of stagnation, it seems like there is a, like you believe that the the average person in the population isn't really going to be reinventing themselves and following their curiosity and, and, and being dynamic in part because of things like matching or of, of, of being able to exist in a way where their main job is really kind of to be a consumer. Um, a does, taxpayer, is that, yes. Is that accurate to you? Does that make sense? Is that kind of your view, your viewpoint? Yes. You know, I don't think we can ever have a world in any country where everyone is dynamic. But we could have, you know, easily at least twice the percentage of people being dynamic as what we have now. Have a lot higher growth, a lot more tax revenue, better jobs created. The picture I outline in my new book, Stubborn Attachments, it's a very positive story of just how much we can gain from higher economic growth. It may just sound like it's only money, but money pays for so many of the finer things in life. It gives us the ability to make choices, to control our destinies, to marry the person we want to marry, to avoid a dangerous or risky job. Um, and when you talk about... Um, when you t- talk about 
economic growth. It makes me think about something that I observe here in Medellin or living in Colombia, and I I might be conflating certain ideas, so it'll be interesting to, to see what you think, is that there's certain kind of technological advances that you go to another culture, a place like Colombia, and they almost like refuse to use it in a way. Like there's still Uber, but the Uber, Uber driver still wants to call you and and confirm and they want to get directions and stuff. And there's this sort of resistance to technological change in a way that is, that to me, it seems like is a part of, of um, the way that their cultural DNA works. Yes. And um, it's something that, you know, something I observe in the United States is, I guess I was just talking to a Colombian about this the other day. He was saying like, oh yeah, in the United States, um, there's a lot of people that there's a lot of shootings going on. He says like a crazy person goes in the mall and just starts, start shooting people. And I gave him my layman's theory, which was that, well, here in Colombia, there's a lot more uh, family attachment. People live in, in, uh, in close quarters with their entire, entire family. Uh, not just because that's a cultural value, but because it's an economic necessity in a way. And then that perhaps uh, works as a sort of social fabric that keeps people a little bit more sane. That's my theory uh, too, by the way. Th- okay. And and so... But it means greater is, conformity as well and less innovation. Yeah, it does mean greater conformity. And like when I say something like, oh, the family unit is this, uh, is this cultural fabric, uh, I'm not saying that that's like the only way that there can be a cultural fabric. It's just that that is an old instance of cultural fabric that seems to work pretty well at getting a lot of people to cooperate on a very wide scale. Absolutely. Is that kind of your uh, assessment of it? Yeah. And so it it makes me wonder sometimes because I, I feel like I see an innovation bias in the United States where there's a lot of optimism about AI. Uh, even I've heard I've heard optimism about transportation. There's going to be this hyperloop thing that's just going to turn the entire Northeast into the, it's one big metropolitan area. And it, I can't help but wonder, one, that um, perhaps there's a little bit of an innovation bias because we just lived through uh, one, of the, one of the biggest innovations uh, in humanity. And so we kind of expect that every new technology that we hear about is going to have the same type of impact that the internet did. But also, uh, can the cultural fabric of the United States uh, hold up long enough for us to even enjoy any of those innovations. Do you have any thoughts around those thoughts? I think on like issues surrounding mental illness, there's a lot of fraying in American society. You see this in the high rates of medication of people who do terrible things with weapons. Uh, to me, it's like the, the biggest problem in this country. Opioid, opioid use is another symptom of this. Yeah. Uh, just people who are sort of some mix of lonely, not happy, and not connected to a social fabric that keeps them steady somehow. And the Latin tradition where face-to-face contact is more important, family is tighter, you're not kicked out of families in the same way, like you're always accepted, even if you don't meet everyone's expectations. It has a lot of minuses, uh, but it's avoided some of the problems of the 50 states. Yeah, and it's really amazing to see when certain technologies come in here and do make life better, but at the same time, there is the sort of sanity and contentment that seems uh, to permeate the world here relative to to living in the United States. Um, it also makes me wonder about economic growth. You know, in, in, in your book, 
Um, in your latest book, Stubborn Attachments, you, you make a lot of arguments for economic growth. And for me, and here's my layman's theory, is that economic growth in many, in many ways is like, sometimes it's like mining, uh, it's like mining iron ore. You know, you have to destroy a mountain and that mm-hmm. mountain in some cases is, uh, is social attachments and you have to set, you know, suddenly it's like, well, you, you want to get a date, you've got to go uh, pay this dating service, etc. And sometimes it, it seems as if economic growth or some component of it is really just the deterioration of the social fabric. Is, does that make any sense to you? And is that something that you agree with? Well, I think it also creates new attachments though. So if mm-hmm. you look at very poor primitive societies, they tend to have very high rates of envy, high rates of family feuds in many instances. So I don't think the data just cut uniformly against economic growth. And furthermore, the ability to pack up and move somewhere else, as you've done to Colombia, is much greater in the wealthier societies. Uh, Colombia is as rich as it is in part because it trades with the U.S. and it uses U.S. or North American technologies. So I think when you look at the world as a whole, I have a more positive view of economic growth, though I would recognize it weakens a lot of attachments uh, and, and more people need this social fabric than are getting it right now in our country. So how might, how might you balance or reconcile those two forces that seem to be opposing? I think the internet is helping many people, though not all, that it helps them meet the people who are really the ones they get along with or who have their niche interest And more and more people are marrying or dating through the internet. And that seems more effective and more efficient to me. Uh, Yet it it has that matching uh, component to it. It has a matching component. That's true. Uh, The matching component being that it it worsens inequality by by sorting people uh, according to um, social class or um, economic uh, status. I think, you know, marriages are also happier, though. And, you know, especially if you're in some way unusual or you belong to a minority group. Like, I've read that about half of all gay marriages, people meet through the Internet. And if you think of the the fraction of the population being gay is, you know, well, well under 50 percent, whatever the number may be, uh, you're more reliant on something like the Internet to meet the best partner. So I think there are pluses and minuses. But when you look at, like, where people migrate to, where they want to live, there are many more people who want to go from Colombia to the U.S. than vice versa, even though, of course, you're one who's gone yes. in the opposite direction. Yes, and I think that if I, was, if I were Colombian, I would probably want to go to the United States. I have no illusions about that. So in the complacent class, the great stagnation, um, you, t- you talk about complacency and being a dynamic person like you are, uh, somebody who is an autodidact. You teach yourself things. You're curious. You you learn about a lot of different things. Um, do you think that there's perhaps, uh, that perhaps part of that problem might be that our approach to education has been in teaching things that are already known, in teaching things uh, that, you know, if you learn these skills, you will get this job, uh, when in fact we might be moving to an con- entirely different modality where a person needs to know how to uh, be curious about something, to follow that curiosity, to to learn themselves about it, and that they've perhaps just had it programmed out of them. 
Uh, I agree with all that, but I'm not sure it's our most fundamental problem. I think our most fundamental problem is that our teachers are not good enough, and we don't pay them enough, and more importantly, we don't give them high enough status. So to improve education in the way you mentioned, I'm not sure we can do it with current personnel. Uh, being a teacher should be something quite prestigious and a, a high-earning occupation that more people aspire to get into and is more selective and that we're tougher on the bad teachers and we just fire them. And that's part of the high prestige. And I think then in that setting, we could do much more of teaching people to be curious rather than just teaching, teaching them rote memorization. But when your teachers themselves are not curious, you know, it's hard for them to teach anyone else that skill. And do you have any theories about why the teachers themselves might not be curious? Well, again, if you look at the mix of pay and status, it's an okay job, but it's not a very good job the way it might be in Finland or Singapore or sometimes in South Korea. So we as a society make a decision how much to value this kind of work. Uh, and, you know, originally teaching was viewed as a kind of like women's work at, at lower levels in a very chauvinist way. It was downgraded. And maybe it's never quite uh, risen out of that. And uh, a lot of it is done by the government, which is not always best for creating high status jobs. And I just think we need a very fundamental reorientation, a decision to make this an absolute priority and it has to come from parents, most of all, but really from all of us. Tyler, it's been so fantastic talking to you. Do you have any uh, final messages for people who are out there who are looking for new ways to be dynamic based upon our conversation today? Well, you know, I'm not sure it, advice is always well taken. So, uh, you know, I would say rather give, than giving you advice, I would ask you all for advice. And if you all have any advice for me, uh, please email it to me. My email is online. And I hope you all enjoy my blogging books, podcasts, and the rest. And thank you for having me on your show. You have a ton of great books. The new one is Stubborn Attachments. I highly recommend people go check that out. Uh, thank you so, so much for being on the show. Is there anywhere else that you'd like for people to find you? Uh, email does best. I'm on Twitter, at Tyler Cowan. And I hope someday to meet up with you in Colombia. I hope that you come here soon. I'll show you around. Great. Is Love Your Work helping you find your unique creative voice? Does it bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to become the creator and human you want to be? If so, please be a part of making this a special and nourishing and thoughtful show. Support the show on Patreon. You'll be an even bigger part of this show than you already are. If you contribute just a coffee a month, you'll be helping support the hosting and production of Love Your Work. Everyone has some unique creative gift to offer the world. Together, we can give people the tools they need to bring that work into the world. The world will be better off for it. Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash This is a different kind of model for supporting the work you love. The choice is yours. Vote with your dollars, put your money where your mind is, and keep Love Your Work going. Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash As a thank you, you'll get early access, bonus content, and a discount on Love Your Work merchandise. Learn more at patreon.com slash That's patreon.com slash K-A-D as in David, A-V as in Victor, Y. Love Your Work is brought to you in part by our Patreon supporters, such as mini-sponsor Roxana Maynard of Agility Alchemist at agilityalchemist.com and top supporters such as Jeffrey Mason and Vitas Pankovicius. This has been Love Your Work, and I'm David Cadavy. 
The theme music for this show is At Sea by Dorena from the album About Everything and More by arrangement with Deep Elm Records at deepelm.com. Love Your Work is a production of Cadavy, Inc. <laughs>